Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers kick off our 10th anniversary in our flagship season, The Decades. On November 26, 2019 at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers rolled it back with stories inspired by the theme 70s. And now, our featured storytellers, Susan Valiquette, Alan Minskoff, and Stitch Marker. Let the good times roll. It's story time. Please welcome to the stage our first featured storyteller, Susan Valakat. Thank you to anybody out there who's thinking I'm not one of the ones at 70. <laughs> My story takes place during the summer of 1974. My husband and I lived at a small little town towards the tip of Cape Cod, and we had a pretty contentious relationship. We decided to take a trip cross country to see if we might make that relationship work. I had the bright idea that if we lived in a tent for six months, that everything would be great and we would reconnect with each other. I know all of you would think, yeah, that's what you want to do if you're having (laughs) trouble with your relationship. So the trip across the Midwest was interesting in a boring sort of way. Luckily, we had a bunch of weed that had been given to us as (laughs) going away gifts from our friends. It made the the trip so much more fun. We were trying to stay off the highway, the freeways, and just stay on the back road so we could experience the countryside. Now, I want to tell you that my husband was born and raised in New York City, so he never needed to drive, so he never learned. He was 6'3", had long red hair that hung below his shoulders, and a big red beard. He loved his hair. He, I, was, I had long dark hair, wore granny glasses, lots of India print clothes, bangles on my arms, and always big hoop earrings. You get the picture. <laughs> Needless to say, a lot of those small towns, farming communities, didn't welcome us with open arms. In fact, we got a lot of odd looks, and a couple of times were asked to leave. At that time, you would often see in restaurant windows, no hippies allowed. So we we got the message, and we traveled as quickly as we could across Nebraska, heading towards the Black Hills in South Dakota. We had been reading Buried My Heart at Wounded Knee and thought it would be interesting to visit some of those areas. So we ended up on the Rosebud Indian Reservation, which is part of the Sioux Nation. It was my first time on a reservation, and I was pretty shaken by the poverty there, and I felt like we didn't belong. My husband, on the other hand, I guess because he thought he could pass as Indian, that uh, <laughs> everything was going to be cool. So we, we headed on to the campground, which was in the center of the reservation, and I was quite surprised when we got there. There was a beautiful stream flowing through it, trees, grass, and a large hill or a small mountain that cascade all over the, the campground. And I couldn't understand why people weren't living here rather than the barren land that they were, were on. 
So first things first, we got stoned and hiked up that hill to, to see what we could see. I have no idea how long we were up there, as it was sometime in the afternoon when we uh, started, and it was the sun was starting to set when we were starting back down. Because we were up so high, in both senses of the word, <laughs> we could see the whole valley. And off in the distance, there were a line of cars heading our way. My first thought was, crap, we're going to have to share the campground with somebody. You know, being all hippie and stuff. But um, <laughs> as I got closer, I realized that these were not campers. These were all the same kind of cars, big and black, moving at a very fast rate of speed, very close together. And their windows were all rolled up. So we hid behind some bushes to see what we could see. <laughs> We wanted to see what was going to play out down there. Sure enough, they pulled in and blocked our car in. And at the same moment, all their doors opened, and these very large men in black suits got out. Now, I, having had spent the late 60s in the San Francisco area and Los Angeles and attended a lot of demonstrations and even been arrested a couple of times, this said one thing to me, FBI. <clears throat> so, have I mentioned that my husband's a bit of a narcissist? <laughs> he, he, he didn't think anything bad would ever happen to him. It, the world really centered around him. Um, meanwhile, down there at the bottom, it was apparent these guys were not going to leave till, they, till we came down, as they all had binoculars scanning the hillside for us. So it was like, OK, we could go over the hill behind us, but to where? Or we could go down and face some music. So that's what we had to do. As we got closer, I realized it wasn't the FBI, but the BIA, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but for reservations. My husband says, oh, cool, they're Indians, no problem. <laughs> I guess he felt because he had long hair and had read a couple of books about their culture, they would accept him as one of their own. <laughs> mm. I, I, didn't, I, I was not feeling that. Um, so we, we continued down, and uh, when, I, when I, we got down there, I, I was saying, let's just play it cool like we're just a couple of stoner campers, which we were, um, and just see what, see what they want. Maybe they want nothing. So when we get down, I was quite surprised to find out that I was the object of their interest. They slammed me up against the car and put handcuffs on me and put me in, in the back seat of one of their cars. Now, I knew enough from previous experiences not to open my mouth. I was hoping my husband wouldn't open his either, but um, no telling. Uh, <clears throat> so as I sat there, they had been going through our car. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. Remember, we're talking the 70s, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> we kept our weed folded up in our tent, in our back seat with our dog sleeping on it. So that's important for this network. <laughs> So anyway, they hadn't taken the tent out of the car, so they, I thought, well, they hadn't found the weed. And, oh, did I mention that we also had some acid in the glove compartment? 
I was really hoping that they wouldn't find that. So after a few minutes of them doing whatever they were doing, it, it seemed apparent they didn't find anything that, of interest. So I thought they'd just let me go and they'd go on their way. Well, that's not what happened. They all got in the car and didn't let me out. <clears throat> I was trying to make eye contact with my husband to just sort of touch base, like, are you worried about me? But <laughs> so he's standing there like, with his arms crossed, staring at our car, and I realized he's not thinking about me. He's more worried about that weed. <laughs> so as the cars pulled away, I'm wondering how I'm going to find him again. And then I'm next thought is, do I really want to find him again? <laughs> so we go for quite a ways, and we come to this tiny little town, and they took me into this very small little post office. I thought, that, this is weird. But when we get in there, I realize that it doubles as a jail. So th this whole time, no one is talking to me. So I had no idea what's going on. They fingerprinted me and took my picture, so, and this was all a major buzzkill, by the way. Um, so they, they put me in what I could only imagine was a closet when it wasn't being used as a cell. So I had some time to think while I was in there, and I'm trying to remember, could there be a warrant out for me for my days in California? I, I didn't think so, but that was the 60s, and I was there, so I don't really remember a lot of it. Throughout the night, different agents would come in and ask me my name. It was confusing because they had my driver's license and my car registration with my name on it, and I assumed when they got my fingerprints back, they would have my name on it. So the confusion just lasted all night for me. At one point, one of them came in and said, and asked me if I knew Patty Hearst. So I was like, did she get caught? Because she, she had been on the run with, her, with the SLA, which I also forgot to mention, sorry. <laughs> um, no answer. And then they started ask, talking to me as if I was friends with her, like I should know personal things about her. It was just so confusing. And at, at some point uh, during the morning, an agent came in and uh, opened the door and he said, you're free to go. So now I'm sort of pissed, because it's like, what's up? So I'm sort of yelling at him that he didn't have any right to hold me without charging me, and, or at least without telling me what this was about. Well. Apparently he did have, he could do whatever he wanted to do. What I got from him was a very scary stink eye that was basically telling me to shut my mouth. At that point, another agent came in and said, um, yeah, not Patty Hearst. So now I realize, like, oh, they think I'm Patty Hearst. Now, I'm standing at the post office window, which is really right next to the jail window. Um, and the post office guy, is, you know, he's laughing. And I said, did they really think I was Patty Hearst? And he, he, was, he thought it was really funny. He said, yeah, they thought they had captured the most wanted criminal in America. And, <laughs> and they were waiting all night long for your fingerprints to come back and had the FBI on standby to swoosh in and get you once you were identified. 
So now they're pissed off because you're just you. <laughs> and they look like fools in the eyes of the FBI. So now I'm thinking it's sort of funny. I mean, I was okay. I, they didn't hurt me or anything. So I was sort of laughing and gathering my things, getting ready to go out. And I'm heading towards the door. I see um, a most wanted poster with Patty Hearst's picture on it and the two, the couple that she was supposedly traveling with. So my, I thought I, thought I needed that poster. <laughs> And I deserved it. Don't you all think I deserved that poster? <laughs> so, so I was going to pull it down and just leave. And I didn't even get my hand up when I got slammed in the back in, into the door. One of the agents is yelling at me that it's federal property and if I, it's a federal offense to take it. And did I want to end up back in that closet? Well, no, I did not. So, but I, I still, I thought, I thought I'd try one more thing. So, so I said, wait a second, aren't reservations sovereign? Like, what do you care? If, just get another one from the FBI. Well, it's not a good idea to argue with cops of any sort, because uh, they don't really like that too much. So I finally just realized I needed to shut up and get out. So I slunk out the door, now on the street, and I'm wondering how I'm going to find my asshole husband. <laughs> I saw him sitting squat, cross-legged under a tree down the street in all of his stoned glory. <laughs> Apparently someone had gone out and, because remember, he doesn't drive, so somebody had gone out and driven him into, into town with my car, my dog, the weed and the acid, and there he was. I had a fantasy for a second of going back inside, telling the BIA agent that he had drugs in the car just so they'd arrest him so I wouldn't have to deal with him. I immediately realized, bad idea, the car's in my name. So, so he didn't even get up to come to me. I had to walk to him. So I go over, thinking, oh, great. And he's, he looks up at me, and he says, hey, man, at least they didn't find the weed. <laughs> so, so that morning, with an assist from Patty Hearst, I realized that the crack that had been in our relationship was actually a chasm. And six months in a tent was not going to fix anything. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alan Meatsbach. So, everybody close your eyes, just for a moment. Imagine you were a man in his early 70s, sitting in his book-lined office in the warm glow of your computer screen, and on that screen is a video, and you are 30 years old. You are just enjoying this moment to the max when your 30-year-old daughter walks in and says, open your eyes now, Dad, is that you? You're so young and handsome. At which point I said, why, thank you, Laura. 
That is me, and in the 1970s, I ran a program called The Future for the Small Town in Idaho for a magazine I did called Idaho Heritage. Some of you may remember it. Uh, thank you, Scott. <laughs> Idaho Heritage, we were, one day we're sitting in our 13th Street office, and there are several of us, and we're all from different places, uh, and we look at each other and say, well, now we have a magazine, which had started because of the downtown Boise issue, but we don't know a darn thing about the state of Idaho. Now, we were a not-for-profit in all the senses of that word. We had a 501c3, we didn't make any money, but we could write grants. We were competitive grant writers. So we wrote a grant to visit 24 towns over two years in Idaho. It began on a winter night in April in Idaho City where we held our first meeting, and then we traveled from Victor to Bonners Ferry, from New Plymouth to St. Mary's, and many places in between. So I'll share with you a couple of the memories. One of my favorite places, and a place that I just went back to to do a book on small towns, is Mackey. Mackey is in the Lost River Range. It is a spectacularly beautiful place. And then, as now, it's under 1,000 people. So we did advanced trips. And on the advanced trip, we would set up a local coordinator. We'd, we'd start to read the papers. We'd interview a few people. We'd find out where we're going to meet. And it so happened that Mackey, they had a great t-shirt that said, where the hell is Mackey? So months later, when we were starting our meeting in Mackey, um, I turned my back, took off my coat, and flashed my where the hell is Mackey t-shirt. And everybody in the room said, oh, this is going to be a fun meeting. They have a good sense of humor. Every meeting was different. Every town is unique in Idaho, and the small towns were then, and I would argue now, still the backbone of the place. Two of the towns that I remember most vividly are Shoshone, which then was really prosperous. We're talking 1977 Shoshone. Lots of trains coming through, lots of people employed. Not like this year when I went back, or last year, when there are buildings that are empty, and they've even moved the Idaho Transportation Department to where else? Dairy Heaven to Twin Falls. When we had our meeting in Preston, Idaho, a fascinating thing happened. Now, we are with a television station, that's why there's a video, KBGL, which was the station in Pocatello back then. And they have brought a crew, and the meeting starts, and I'm standing there in front and uh, calling on people, and it is a celebration of Preston. It is so beautiful. The mountains are spectacular. The fishing's the best, the hunting's the best. These people make for the best community on earth. Finally, a guy says to me, and you know, this is the purest water in Idaho. So I have a glass of water and I toast with him. And about 30 seconds after the toast, an elderly lady stands up and she says, can I tell you something opposite from this point of view? Everybody gets stock still in the room. She said, my family came across the country with the Mormon pioneers. And I have lived in this town for decades. And no one, and I'm of a different faith, and no one has ever invited me to dinner. At which point, you see all the folks in the room's eyes go down. Happily, about 60 seconds later, this is a small town, close to it, somebody says, well, come to my house. Why don't you come to my house? And it kind of warmed up the room and improved the mood 120%. Of course, what happens with television? The next day, the KBGL guys go out and visit her at her home, and she wants to walk this back. We have gone back to Boise 
she's living in, in Preston, and so it's a kind of a lesson in human relations. So now she wants to, she's not going to forget that she's got to be there the next day. Of the towns that we went to, some are just, were so unforgettable because they have changed so much in the four decades since I was there first. Rathdrum had under 1,000 people. It's now really close to 10,000. The only thing that's the same in Rathdrum is the trains roll through every two minutes. Bellevue, I'm sure many of you know it, back in the 70s was under 1,000. It's now probably closer to three, and it has expanded. It is much wider. Some of the other towns that were, were dramatic, because I need to go back to, to Mackey for a second. So I went back to Mackey, and this is my sort of small town anthem. I drive in, I pull up at the gas station, and I have a meeting with a guy named McElvey. Now, Mackey is tiny. I could have probably found his office, but I want to wander around. So I asked the lady at the cash register, do you know a guy named Bill McKelvey, I think? She says, oh, yeah, Bill, that's my brother. And, of course, she directs me right to Bill McKelvey's place. So traveling around Idaho in 1976 and 1977, we covered about 10,000 miles. We met literally hundreds and hundreds of people. We created two magazines. And we learned a little bit about what life in small towns is. And I'll give you two threads that I, I think still are part of the skein of small town life. One is people take care of each other. You won't get stuck in a ditch in small town Idaho without somebody pulling you out. And they will rise to an occasion. When I was in St. Mary's, they talked about, now this is a mill town. There are three working mills in St. Mary's. People have jobs. What they cannot get, and this is the same in Preston, is a motel. Now, what else happens in small-town Idaho is it is, of course, small-town as the adjective. So I met, for example, in Oakley with the city manager. And here's another moment in small towns. I walk in, I said, look, could I interview you sometime? I'm in town, and I really am doing this book on small towns. Could we talk sometime? She says, what about right now? I said, now is perfect. So she talked about how enjoyable her life was, that, you know, there's a there's a, uh, a business, Oakley Stone is in Oakley. But she said, here is the downside. Everybody knows your business in a small town. So traveling back this, this past year, one of the most fascinating towns then, this year and 40 years ago, was Elk River, Idaho. Now those of you who went to the University of Idaho, Elk River is that town you went to party in 30 miles to the east. There is no sheriff in Elk River. Now there's no school, there was then. Now there's no mill, there was then. Maybe there are 80, maybe 100 people in Elk River. It depends who you ask. So I had set up an appointment with the woman at the Elk River Lodge, and I show up, and she had totally forgot. Now, you know, I'm there, Elk River, it's tiny. You make do. So as, we're having, as I'm meeting where the people are having breakfast, they're walking in and out, I interview who is, who is ever, whoever is there. Well, one old guy said he's born like 86 years ago in Elk River. He has seven and a half fingers. He's been a logger his whole life. <laughs> and he says, you know what we are concerned about here in Elk River? I said, what? He said, wolves. They have changed the behavior of the elks. They, they don't bugle as much. They're aware of the wolves all the time. And another guy then chimes in who hasn't said a word. He said, you know, I was on my tractor and we were surrounded by wolves. I was surrounded by wolves, and I was really frightened. And they really are just frightening, scary animals. Now, they're wolves. Now, there's another old boy who's been sitting around. He's got a long white beard for 50 years, worked in the forest. 
He looks up to me and said, you know, I don't buy that. I think the wolves aren't doing anybody any harm. But I do have one idea. I said, what's that? He said, let's teach those wolves to eat Californians. <laughs> when I started writing about and working on small towns in Idaho, it was in the 1970s, and there was a famous bumper sticker. Maybe some of you remember it. Remember it. Idaho is what America was. And I will say that lots has changed, and in Boise, we are no longer what America was. We are a modern, contemporary city with all the pluses and the minuses. But if you're in Lava Hot Springs, if you're in Idaho City, if you're in Murray, Idaho, you still are what America was. Thank you very much. Stitch Marker. Thanks, Jody. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in the early 70s, there was a group of very eager BSU theater arts students. We were known as the unquenchables because we could not get enough theater. We were just obsessed with learning and making theater, and we all shared this common dream. We dreamed of a time that maybe one day we would be able to work in professional theater without leaving Boise, Idaho. And uh, yeah, that was a bold idea. And, and I was, well, don't get me wrong, I was by far the most neurotic, wimpy, and spineless, uh, unquenchable, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but all the other unquenchables sort of propped me up through the 70s, and there was Danny Peterson and, uh, uh, Victoria Holloway and Ginger Scott and about a half dozen others that I can think of that uh, later on in, in the decade in 1977 became founding members of the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. But up to that point, uh, being an actor in Boise was about 85% heavy lifting and no pay. And we loved it! Oh, we couldn't get enough. Oh, if you couldn't find us over here at the BSU Subal Theater, then look at Boise Little Theater. And if not there, we were probably at the Free Theater, Theatre Libre. And, uh, <laughs> and about, um, well, and our friends, Randy and Andrea, kind of broke off from BSU to start their own thing, Theater in a Trunk. In a, 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 that was a late 73, early 74, in this old warehouse on 16th and Bannock. And in, it was a leased to them for a dollar a year by dear Pama Boss. And inside this building, it was all like really aged wood. It was a, you know, wonderfully slightly bleached aged wood and ceilings, floors, uh, the bare studded walls, big huge uh, rough-hewn columns, and all the unquenchables at BSU were going to climb on board to this thing. Wow, here we go. And uh, with virtually no money and a lot of sweat, we transformed that warehouse into a workable 50-seat theater. And we were about two weeks out from opening our first show. And uh, in comes the fire marshal, takes one look at all that wood, and says, you're going to have to sheetrock this entire interior of this warehouse uh, before you can let people in. Well, we were just stunned standing there. And he left, 
And who do you suppose was the first unquenchable to blurt out, well, that's it, we're done, it's over. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the wimpy, spineless, neurotic one. <laughs> yeah, and all these unquenchables just turn and look at me, and my best friend, Danny Peterson, <laughs> turned to me and he said it wasn't for the first time or the last, and he was never mean about it. He said, ah, come on, Stitch, grow a pair. <laughs> And uh, sure enough, we got our good friend Dale Asplund in, and he gave us a crash course on sheetrocking. And uh, he got the sheetrock somewhere, I don't know, some wheeling, dealing, I hope it wasn't stealing. But, uh, you know, this mad flurry for two weeks, his hammers and saws and, and uh, you know, all-nighters, and, uh, and, and we're doing rehearsals, we're shouting lines at each other over the, the constant noise, and, and oh, white sheet rock dust everywhere. And when that dust settled, we opened that show and it was a, a success. And uh, though theater in a trunk never did make anybody any money ever, we were really proud of it because we kept that theater going for, uh, well, a good handful of years. And we were producing some really always compelling and usually audience-pleasing theater. And, uh, uh, and it was also a great training ground for those, uh, for the actors who did the early years of the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. We all sort of taught each other uh, making something out of nothing theater, which is my favorite kind. And then in 19, excuse me, dry mouth, it's nervous. There are a lot of you out there. <laughs> oh, that's better. In 1975, uh, BSU was doing a production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it was the hot ticket. All the unquenchables wanted in on it. There was a guest director, Larry West, and a guest actor, Doug Copsey. And um, we all got in on this, and it was the A-team. Uh, a lot of he heavy hitters in that one. We had Michael Hoffman joined us at that point in time. And uh, you know the story of Cuckoo's Nest, basically, right? You have uh, Nurse Ratchet, played by Victoria Holloway, and she has all this influence over the Bull Goose Loonies, which was all of us. And uh, then you got this new guy who comes into town, McMurphy, and he was played by Doug Copsey, and he kind of instills the Bull Goose Loonies with all this confidence and, you know, instills us with the ability to have big ideas and so forth, and we'd follow him anywhere, and we did. And it was sort of life imitating art, because two years down the road, Victoria became the first artistic director of the festival, and, and uh, Copsey became the uh, founding producing director of the festival. And, uh, oh, and side note, I did indeed play the most neurotic, wimpy, and spineless <laughs> Bull Goose Looney. No. And uh, Michael Hoffman, who played another Bull Goose Looney, Cheswick, he had said uh, that uh, he thought that even though the festival started in 1977, two years down the road, he really felt like it sort of began there. And we all had that feeling. Uh, a year down the line, 1976, we got the band back together at Theater in a Trunk to do the prime of Miss Jean Brody, and Sue Galligan came on board. And by then, Victoria was just saying, you know, what we do is valuable. We've got to get started. We, we need to start getting paid for this. And, um, 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, and uh, at any rate, so all these big ideas were flying around. We had to get out of that 50-seat theater in order for that to happen. And so we were talking about maybe doing the musical Hair. But this was the 70s, and the royalties were through the roof, so that was out. And somebody just, just popped off, well, what about Shakespeare? He's free. <laughs> well, and the, the, the seed was planted, and then life happened, and we all had day jobs all the way through the 70s. We had day jobs. Some of us were still in school and families and so forth. And here's the wimpy, neurotic part of me. I'm thinking, oh, this isn't going to happen. It's too big an idea. It'll never happen. You know, and on it goes. And then the biggest regret of the 70s for me, it's 1977, and my friend Doug Copsey comes up and offers me a good role in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was going to be the first production of Idaho Shakespeare Festival, produced right down here? Yeah, down 9th Street, just a couple of blocks, at number one Capitol Center there on 9th and Main, you know, where that sort of grassy amphitheater thing is, and down there's the restaurant patio, cement patio, and those magnificent cement uh, staircases coming down either side, and it broke my heart. I had to turn him down because I had uh, committed to do this dumb dinner theater thing that never went anywhere, and uh, it was too late to get out of it. But the good news was that that was going to end before Midsummer Night's Dream opened. So I was able to jump all over the set crew and the, the build the fence around the amphitheater crew and the uh, you know help help wrestle those heavy potted, really tall trees that Sterling Landscape had generously loaned us, uh, wrestle those down the cement staircase onto the patio so we could make the Enchanted Force crew and the water, the trees at night crew and the, and the guard, the barricades on 9th and Main uh, from traffic for noise purposes so the you know pissed off teenagers didn't come and move them and go crashing through to, to uh, Cruise Main. You know, Really, honestly, I think about it, I, I don't really have many regrets about that because I got to, to be there every night, be sort of part of uh, watching my friends and colleagues uh, create absolute, absolute magic. And uh, the audiences every night just kept getting bigger and bigger. And uh, that was 77 and 78, we did uh, Two gentlemen of Verona and the audiences are just pouring in and then the year after that 79 we did uh, Romeo and Juliet Merry Wives of Windsor we added a show and uh, you know in the next year it was three Shakespeare productions so it was really a going thing and I'm convinced to this day that you know I, I think uh, people expected to see good theater when they came Granted, but I don't think they expected to see quite the clear storytelling and the innovating acting choices, bold uh, acting choices, and the outrageous humor and the tight ensemble work that came out of a, a group of people working together on and off throughout the 70s, uh, teaching each other how to make something out of nothing theater. And uh, I am grateful to this day to all those unquenchables who did not give up, give up on the dream and made a theater where I was able to uh, 
well, realized the dream. I, I was able to do 30 seasons on and off of Idaho Shakespeare and, uh, uh, you know, many, many uh, off-season shows, uh, in, indoor shows, and uh, directed the Apprentice program for seven summers, and entertained and educated hundreds of thousands of students uh, all over Idaho and, and the western states in uh, the ISF's outreach programs, uh, Shakespeareans and Idaho Theater for Youth. And, well, we lost a few of those uh, wonderful unquenchables, Danny Peterson and Sue Galligan and John Elliott, and God love them. They were unquenchable right to the last. So, anyway, Godspeed, uh, tip your server. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was DJ Jared Manimal Bostrom. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel at Story Story Boise. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Story